Straight to you from Denver, Colorado, this is Precursor the Startup Journey. We share the ins and outs of building a tech startup from inception to launch to revenue and beyond. If you've ever wondered what building a startup from scratch really looks like, you're in the right place. With full transparency and honesty, we reveal it all about Precursa on our ride from idea to exit, the wins, the lessons learned, and the unexpected twists and turns. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is Precursa, the startup journey. Today, I'm so excited for today's guest. She's one of my favorite people on the planet, and she has been along for the ride for so many of my entrepreneurial journeys, so it's really, really fun to have her here today. So today, we're joined by Shoshana French, CEO and founder of Simple Spirit. So Shoshana is not only an entrepreneur herself, but she also works with entrepreneurs using their intuition to help guide their businesses in the right direction. Her goal is to cultivate wildly successful leaders, and she's worked with NFL coaches, Broadway actresses, founders of million and billion dollar companies with clients in 26 countries. So without further ado, please welcome Ms. Shoshana to the show. (laughs) (laughs) That was some great hype. <laughs> Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, how you became an entrepreneur, and uh, what you're working on now? Mm. So, how I became an entrepreneur was actually you and I were in a group together. It was a money group, yeah. and I was broke. And in that group, they said, "If you want to not be broke, you need multiple streams of income." And so. Mm. The coach said, start a business. And the only point of reference I had for starting a business was my dad. He owned a motorcycle uh, shop when I was growing up. And brick and mortar businesses are hard for those people who listen to your podcast who are brick and mortar owners. That's hard work. It's high overhead and you work a lot of hours. And um, it was a service-based brick and mortar. So I knew I didn't want to do that because that looked hard. My dad still now, even so many years later, works really long hours. So that was the start. And there are lots of things that interest me. Cynthia knows this about me because we've known each other almost 20 years. Uh, a long time. A long time. But there are a lot of things that interest me. There is very few things that I don't find intriguing or worthy of some kind of conversation. So when I started a business, I just took the thing that was easiest <laughs> and decided to turn it into a business. So that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, the last will be 17 years in January since I started the business. And the last 17 years have been quite an interesting journey. What I'm working on now is really um, working, kind of honing on what kind of, honing in on what kind of entrepreneurs I love working with. Um, Mm. And what I find is that the entrepreneurs that I love working with are the ones who have a really big vision. And it's not that they're unskilled. They they tend to have a lot of different skills, but it's, um, they lack trust in some way for how to either grow this thing that they've had for a while and or get this new thing that they're creating kind of off the ground. I really love helping entrepreneurs get reconnected to that inspiration that had them start the the journey in the first place. And so I'm working on that right now. I'm working on a book right now. Ooh. Yeah. And that's interesting. And as all entrepreneurs know, work-life balance all the time, (laughs) which I am not great at. Cynthia and I definitely have that in common. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I love what I do. If I didn't love what I would, what I did, I would probably whine and moan about it. But I mostly am like, oh, I should probably do something else than work. Although work is so fun. (laughs) Because my work is people and I love people. So (laughs) what are you going to (laughs) do? Okay, so you said something that I think is really interesting, which you said you didn't want to do it the hard way, and so you wanted to do the thing that felt easiest. I know I hear this all the time from people. Is there some magic or some secret to figuring out what is the easiest path for someone who wants to be an entrepreneur? And can it be easy? Does it always have to be hard? I mean, we always hear, especially in the startup world, the trough of sorrows and it's so hard and you have to, uh, you know, like all the things. And I just, I'm exploring this topic and I'm curious what you would tell entrepreneurs about that. Should it be easy? Should it be hard? Is there a right answer? 
This is like we're getting deep and philosophical up here. For the, in, a, in a morning. We're talking in the morning right now. Good thing I worked out this morning. So philosophically speaking, hard is a judgment. Mm. Hard and easy both are a judgment. So in my experience, if you don't love it, it will feel hard every day. Mm. So to me, especially with entrepreneurs I work with, it's How do you get reconnected to that initial inspiration about your business? I know this thing happens because I've seen it. I mean, doing the work I've done for so many years, but meeting so many entrepreneurs who, I mean, in all kinds of industries, people who provide consulting between businesses, people who provide, Mm. you know, provide consulting to uh, corporations and to education, and then all the way to people who, you know, have a network marketing company that they're growing. So, I mean, broad, broad, broad. For sure, it is not, there's not any one certain kind of entrepreneur. All entrepreneurs kind of have this wild idea, whatever that wild idea is. I mean, my wild idea was to not be broke. (laughs) And I've been broke for a long time when I started my business. So whatever that wild idea is, I don't want to work for somebody else or I'm inspired by this product or whatever. But there's this moment when you get really inspired by the idea that you have. Mm-hmm. whatever that idea is. And then the moment following that, you ask yourself, how? And what I find mm-hmm. is that when entrepreneurs go from the like why, the inspiration and the what, yeah. to the how, that switch between those two things, they move from the creative part of their brain, what I call intuition, but some people call the creative part of their brain. They move from the creative part of their brain into the part of their brain that now needs to comb through data. What have other people done in this industry? What are other people who've been successful done? What are all the books I can read? Is there a class I can take? And when we stop trusting that kind of initial inspiration and we get into like how, it gets hard. It's always hard in the how, Mm. especially when you're trying to create the steps to how to do it. it. And that's when it gets hard. So from my own journey, all the places where I went from inspired to how, like, I have to figure this out. There's something wrong, you know, because now you have this whole thing called, okay, so I have this idea, like I was talking to an entrepreneur and she, this was 25 years ago, she had an idea that no one was really selling high fashion clothing online. They weren't 25 years ago. Yeah, sure. So she started a fashion line and they sold exclusively online. She was one of the first. Actually, her business just went public, which is pretty amazing. That's cool. Um, Yeah. And so when she started it, that was the idea. And she went into the how and every person she talked to were like, that's, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. Like (laughs) no one buys clothing online. They can't tell what size they need to buy. And she just knew that wasn't true. And so she stayed really inside of the inspired how for a really long time. And then she said this point came when she had 20 employees and some, some of whom were doing the online stuff. And it was like, Oh wow, like our overhead now is kind of doubled and but our but our sales haven't. What yeah. do we do? And she yeah. moved into the like now I need to fix a problem instead mm-hmm. of I need to create something that's never existed before and fixing the problem put her into a different mindset and it mm-hmm. became like now I have to climb up this big ass hill. Yeah. huge mountain and that made it hard. Yeah. And when things get hard we we move out of our creative brain and she said i'm lucky that i had at the time a mentor who was telling me stop doing that you know kiss keep it simple stupid like she said i had a mentor who was like hey girl kiss like like stop making it so hard go back to the part where you have the clear vision in your mind and you're really inspired by that and then ask yourself how do i bring that vision into fruition let go of how do i fix that my overhead has doubled but my sales haven't yeah and when she moved out of the solving of the problem and back into her inspiration it was, she said it came like she called it a, she calls them lightning bolt she's like it came yeah. like a lightning bolt and i knew exactly what <laughs> i needed to do and that's how that goes yeah. that's how it goes i mean we could talk about all arenas, whether it's entrepreneur or science or people who are creatives, it doesn't really matter. But in those inspired lightning bolt moments, 
Yeah. It's Glennon Doyle in her book, Untamed, talks about it. She calls it when you have those kind of inner wisdom knowings, whatever word you want to use. When she moved back into that space, when entrepreneurs move back into that curiosity space, they can literally create anything. So your initial question, which is like, does it have to be hard? Well, it doesn't have to be hard or easy. It does take a lot of effort, though. And there are times when business takes no effort and there are times when business takes lots of effort, but whether or not it's hard seems relative. Yeah. So you you said something interesting with the example that you gave. You talked about how she had this vision, this like wild, crazy idea, and she heard a lot of no. And so much no. There, so much no. This, uh, yeah. And, the, and my question has to do with as somebody starting something, is hearing no an indicator or is hearing no something for you to overcome? How do you know the difference between something that is a great idea but is just so different that people can't quite grasp it yet versus when it's a market telling you there's nothing here, don't spend your money and time? Like, is there a difference? Well, all I can think of is really, really big examples of how hearing no is not an indicator of a poor idea. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think of Walt Disney. Mm. Before he created Disney World in California, nothing like that existed. Yeah. You know, uh, carnivals existed, but a place that didn't move every week did not exist, like a solid place like that. I think of Elon Musk he had that idea to create a, a need to be a luxury electric car. No one had that idea. I mean, Prius, that's what existed, yeah. right? And so those are all really, really big examples. But my client who owned the clothing line, that was an idea. It's lots of people have ideas. So I would say that this for me is like that fine line between the moment when you when you get as far as you can get with the idea you have, and then you don't know what to do next To me, it's like, that's when you ask yourself the question, who around me is here in support of the idea, but Mm. has more knowledge of the how than I do? Mm. And all the, I mean, almost every truly successful entrepreneur I've ever met, and that goes, like I said, again, in a wide range of success, brings to them brilliant people, brilliant Mm. people. I was in a room with John Mackey, the former owner of Whole Foods once, and he was talking about, you know, his idea and he started to buy up all of these small health food stores in Texas. That's where he's from. And uh, people were saying to him, like, there are not enough hippies in the world for you to make a go of this because people like thought of him as a hippie. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And what he said was healthy food is not just for hippies you dummies. And he was right. The market bearing the idea you have is not an indicator of a good idea. Sometimes what I've seen happen, I knew a woman who started a company in Switzerland and it was a concierge company. It was kind of like what we would think if you combine DoorDash, Uber, and Instacart, right? Kind of that common, it was all three of those things. She started it as a student in Switzerland and people there were like, uh, we just walked down the stairs and there's markets. Why would we want yeah. that? <laughs> and it wasn't that the idea was bad. It was the market wasn't right, right? So she ended up coming to the United States, got married, had kids. And then all of a sudden she looked around her and there were, you know, all of these services offered. Yeah. And she was like, oh, got it. Like, it was yeah, a good idea. It was idea. In the wrong place. It yeah. was the wrong place. And so mm. I think sometimes if you're a, if you're a startup and you have this wild, amazing idea, and you just keep hitting the wall. And all of us know as entrepreneurs, we know that dang wall, it stinks. But when you hit the wall, the question I think to ask yourself is, am I doing this in the most complicated way possible? Or is there a simpler way I could do this? (laughs) And I think sometimes what we find is, you know, do I have to do it all at once? No, probably not. I mean, to share a little more of my journey this year, I went from one to one to one to many. I've been working on, you know, creating group programs 
which anybody who listens to your show that is a coach or a consultant gets this. And it was just like too many. 2020 brought 400 new clients and I just Ooh. couldn't couldn't do more one-on-ones than I was doing. But I did this thing, which I, I just misread something, which is I dropped a lot of my focus on one-on-one and really only focused on group. And it mm. shrunk my it just shrunk my business this year, not intentionally the way that I wanted to, but, and so now I'm having to reevaluate, right? Like the market mm-hmm. wants these group programs. However, you don't drop the the part of your business that's really solid and grows and turn to something completely new, right? Yeah. But I didn't, I wasn't asking that question when I was checking in about the <laughs> the inspired idea. I was only checking in on the inspired idea. I wasn't looking at the whole business. The whole picture. Yeah, the whole picture. And that that happens for a lot of us entrepreneurs. <laughs> We're looking at the one thing. So that's what, what I would say too, is if you're finding yourself, uh, you know, as a startup or really any business, and you just keep hearing a lot of no's, you one are you asking the wrong people because again you all all entrepreneurs need support whatever that looks like whether it's a mastermind like other business owners to support you or other experts yeah you know experts in their unique positions that are not in competition with you people who can help you figure it out but the other reason that you might be hearing no's is sometimes there is a no inside Mm. and you you just have to look at you just have to look for yourself it does this feel like a no? And then sometimes there's an adjustment, right? I kept hearing no all year about something, but I wasn't sure what it was. I thought it was contractors. And so we hired new ones and let them go. And like all of that, no. (laughs) What I was getting the no about was removing my focus from the part of my business that has been successful for 16 years. (laughs) Yeah. But that's how that goes sometimes. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, oops. <laughs> okay, well, what you're saying is interesting and I I I want to tell you a statistic and then in the context of what we've been talking about, I want you to tell me what should we learn from this or what do you think about this, okay? So, Crunchbase did a study a few years ago where they postmortemed a thousand startups. And what they found was that money was not actually the biggest barrier to a startup making it. What they found was that only 33% of startups failed because they ran out of money. 42% of startups fail because no one wants what they're building. That's super interesting. 42%. 42%. No product market fit. Huh. Well, I will say this, which is, and you know me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like who, did they, who did they ask? Where does that statistic come from, yeah. right? Were they talking to venture capitalists? Were they talking, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, were they, they, were, talking, they were to talking to founders and- Founders. And, yeah. Founders. Okay, got it. So this yeah. is founders- And looking at their books and all that kind of stuff. Okay, got it. Yeah. So they were looking yeah. at, a, you know, a thousand founders and 40, you know, 420 of them said that the reason why it failed is because they couldn't find a market fit. I, You know, the here's one thing I will say- And this may sound like I'm going back on what I said a minute ago. However, what I've seen with founders sometimes, it's like the the big why. So the vision, right? Yeah. So the vision of the woman I was talking about earlier, the fashion line, Colleen, it wasn't about the vision. Like her vision was not about looking online and seeing this fashion stuff, right? That was not the vision. What her vision was is a world where Busy people could have beautiful clothing, high-end fashion without having to, because she's in this little tiny town in Northern California, right? Yeah. And it was people like that didn't have to drive down into San Francisco in order to shop for beautiful things, as an example. So her vision was kind of like John Mackey. His access was anybody could have access, no matter where they live, access to food that is sustainably grown and yeah. without chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those things, being the happiest place on earth. I mean, you just think of all these different yeah. visions, right? So the vision is not this place in California, like the happiest place on earth, the physical location, all the things. The yeah. vision was a place where families could come together and have a place where even adults could slip into a fantasy world that reminds them of their childhood. Mm. So what I think about is the what happens for founders is they get attached to the how. Mm. It becomes a, a sense of pride 
Yeah. Right? They have the big why, the really clear vision. One of my friends, Shelly Bell, she runs a nonprofit called Black Girl Ventures. And how it started was in the living room with a bunch of women put $100 in a jar, right? There was 10 of them. Yeah. And that was $1,000. And women in the group got up and pitched their business. And at the end, someone won the pot, the $1,000. That's how it started. Oh, that's cool. She closed in 20... 21 so this year so far 3.5 million dollars in partnerships with nike experian visa right Mm. she's only been in existence since 2017 the vision she has is of women of color having access to capital that's her vision that's the vision she was not what she said is she's not attached to the how that happens because in the beginning, right, the, she's a perfect example. In the beginning, what she thought is, I need to go to people who have money, individuals. Yeah. And she did that for the first almost three years. And yeah. all of a sudden, she had this inspired vision, right, that was aligned. I, do, I don't want to be attached to the how, which is to yeah. find wealthy individuals and get them to invest. Yeah. Instead, what, what came to her was, well, you know, there are big corporations that are inspired by this vision, the vision of women of color having access to capital and starting businesses, which of these corporations are inspired by that? And that's where she went. She oh. let go of the the how. And I would guess that maybe it's probably not 100% of that 42%, right? Mm. But my guess would be that quite a few of that 420 got attached to the, the form or the formulation of the product they were offering. And they forgot to innovate when they were not getting the response the response yeah thank you the response from the market that they wanted yeah um and that's there's this book called focus it's a book basically about how really big corporations get known for something and then they have all this extra money and they get excited about another offering in the market and so they switch right yeah and one of the ones they talked about was what is that? I can't even think of what the company name is now because they don't even exist anymore. That was the whole point, right? <laughs> it was like, if you need, if you needed long distance back in the day, MCI, that's what it was. Oh, See, yeah, I just yeah, all of yeah. a sudden came MCI. back in my brain. So MCI, right? They offered long distance. That's who you went to. Yeah. But then they switched to something else and to something else. It, I think there's a difference between diluting your brand and mm. being willing to look again and go, oh, got it. Can we still fulfill the vision, right? The vision is that people have access no matter where they live to beautiful, high-end, fashionable Mm. clothes. Yeah. And yet change how we're offering it. Mm. Like, are we attached to the method in which we're delivering the product, right? So what what she said is people had told her for years that she needed an app and she's like, I don't want to do an app. Yeah. She's like, I know that my people don't want an app. So like that was what people in the market were telling her, right? Sure. But she just, she just kept delivering and she would adjust based on what her customers told her. Yeah. But the the vision stayed the same, the way in which she delivered new stuff all the time, doing it like fashion does where you change it by the season. She just kept playing with it. So that's, that makes me curious. If I could go back and interview those 420 people, I would ask that question. I would say, did you get attached to the method in which you were delivering, mm. you know, the product? Yeah. Were you present to the vision that you had? Yeah. And was there another way you could have delivered the vision? You said something interesting. I just, I kind of want to call out, which is you said she listened to her customers. And the thing that I always find when I start working with people, especially when they're having a product market fit problem, is I always ask the question like, well, who are you talking to? If you're talking to your investors, they are going to tell you something very different. But have you asked customers? Even if you don't have any customers yet because you have a brand new idea, which a lot of people who listen to the show are like, how do I take an idea and turn it into something? Talk to people who would be ideal to buy what you're trying to create, right? And I guess I wonder from you, is there something else that people should be doing or does it come down to the customer? Like how does the vision and the customer come together seems like the big question, right? Yeah. What that makes me think of is there's this, I'm going to call it the wrong title because I read it probably seven or eight years ago, Blue Market Space. Mm. Okay. You heard of that book? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Basically the gist is that a lot of people operate in what he calls the red market space, which is where the sharks hang out. It's red because it's bloody. 
right? Oh, and yeah. what you want to do is you want to find your blue market space. Like it's not, you're not the only, but it's really clear what your market space is. So what comes to me when you say that is some of the best product ideas answer a problem that consumers don't even know they had. Mm. So sometimes the inspired idea is you as an as an idea person, as the entrepreneur, see a problem. Like you see a yeah. problem in the market. Yeah. And you know if you have this thing and that answers that problem that these consumers didn't even know that they had, once they hear it, they go, oh my God, yeah, totally have that problem. Yes. Duh, yeah, we need that, right? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Like when you go talk yep. to customers, what you want to think about is, who are the people who have that problem? Have you asked them how they would want to receive that solution? Yeah. And if, and I think what you say is really valuable, which is I learned this statistic recently, which is people in either venture capital or investors, right? Mm -hmm. yep. They expect seven out of 10 companies they invest in to fail. Like they anticipate that. And so they've adjusted for it in their investment model. Mm -hmm. So, if they're giving you advice, <laughs> they, like you might, you might just want to take a pause and go, hmm. It's so funny you said that because you, you know, we've been, we've been pitching to fundraise for Precursor and we've talked extensively about this. So just for context for, for my listeners, Shoshana is one of my business coaches. Whenever I talk about some of the things that she enlightens me on, you'll know it because typically there's something like a duh moment or a, Hey, what was your intuition telling you? And I'm like, Oh yeah, right. I forgot about that part. So when you just said that, what it reminded me of, it was probably like a month and a half ago, and I was pitching to a guy who's who runs a venture fund in town. I mean, the whole conversation was so great. And he was like, yeah, I totally get this. He's like, we should be using this. Like, are you talking to investors to be potential customers? And I said, yeah, we will eventually. But right now we're focusing on incubators and accelerators because that's where most entrepreneurs go first. And, you know, it's just such a great conversation. And their whole premise of their fund was that they're an early stage fund. So pre-product, pre-revenue. I was like, we're perfect for you. We're just about to launch, but we haven't yet. So you're still going to get the best value and whatever. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I really love this. He's like, check back in with me at the end of the week because I want to pitch this to my, you know, my my other people in the fund and see if we can't get you guys some help. I came back to him on Friday of that week and he was like, yeah, you're just too early for us. And I was like, what the ever loving. And so I, I got on the phone with Paige and Sarah, uh, who everybody knows is our co-founders. I got on the phone with them and I said, you know what I realized? I realized that I'm talking to guys who have a nine out of 10 failure rate and I'm bummed that they don't get it. I'm like upset that they don't get it. But how much do we do that? We forget who we're talking to or the context. Like I want to draw that parallel to what you're saying, which is the vision, and we talk about this all the time, so my audience is not, they have heard this from me a million times. The vision and the why, yes, you have to have the execution. You have to be able to turn that into a thing. But getting attached to the execution is where we get in trouble. And that's what you're saying. People who, you won't, you can't see this because it's just audio, but I could not be more emphatically nodding my head. <laughs> I'm like giving myself whiplash over here, nodding my head to every word you said. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, exactly. That goes for for everything in life, but especially for entrepreneurs. Yeah. One of my business coaches says, the way she talks about it is like sunglasses, right? Like we put, mm. your, put these sunglasses on and the vision you see, she calls it your world, right? It's the yeah. world that you see. And entrepreneurs who have a big vision, it is like they see a different world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's they see a world in which this problem that plagues people that they can see, yeah. but they can see it where it's solved. Yeah. Because that's what they get inspired by. And I've seen so many interesting ideas. So many interesting ideas with entrepreneurs I've worked with. Right now, I'm working one of the women in my intuitive entrepreneur program. She runs a lab in Germany, of yeah. all things. Oh, wow. And they're working on finding a solution to juvenile asthma. Oh, wow. Spe specific. And so she has this idea, this vision in her mind of a collaborative model you know, where scientists from all over the world can come. So she has this little lab right now with like five people, but the vision that's in her mind is this really big lab yeah. with hundreds of, 
And she said, not academic so that it's not about publishing, but more about hands-on taking action and producing a result. And that's the vision that she has. And so if she listened to academia, they would say she's crazy because in academia, you have to be careful as a scientist because people snag stuff. Yeah. And so this model in her mind of this collaborative place where all of these scientists can come and share ideas is not a popular idea. (laughs) 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 But, But she's unwilling to not, like that's the vision that she has. So I just think... I agree with you. You have to you have to ask yourself, this person I'm talking to, they know what they know, but do they know what I know? Mm. Do they do they identify, you know, the the problem that that I see in the market, in the world, these in my core market group, do they see the same problem I see? Yeah. And do they get the solution as a true solution to that problem? And if they don't, then tell them thank you and move on to the next person. Yeah. Do you think there's such thing as a bad idea? Of course. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Have you ever heard, what was that thing called the... Oh my God, it was called the, it was like a vacuum cleaner for cutting hair. Do you remember that thing? Oh, the Floby. The f- <laughs> <laughs> Of course I know That's that. That's a horrible idea. So I many grew- things could go wrong with that. I grew up in a trailer in Western North Carolina. Those were like all the commercials, all the commercials. <laughs> it was named after the, after Flo, the like, she was a massive running star. Like, oh yeah. Olympic runner. Yes. And I'm it like, was that's named what after they came her. up with for no her? <laughs> idea. That's freaking ridiculous. I mean, yes, of course there are there are lots of terrible ideas. They now, oh, it's so gross. I even think about it. It grosses me out. There's like, my mom is somebody who likes to put ranch on a salad and then add salsa on top of that. You can buy salsa ranch. It, that's disgusting. <laughs> but clearly I'm not the target market, obviously. Hello. <laughs> No, but are there bad ideas? No. I mean, I was joking. I don't know. I don't know that there are bad ideas, right? Mm. I I know that there are great ideas, bad execution. Yeah. Sometimes some ideas are a little too early. You know, they're not quite ready for the market or the technology is not up to snuff to deliver on the idea. Yeah. I don't know. Ideas are a funny thing. Are there bad ideas? product ideas i don't know i mean in my in my upbringing back in the day <laughs> there was this thing called <laughs> there was this thing called olympics of the mind o o m o m and it was where i have no idea how i ended up in there but it was like you had to come up with inventive ideas i was some of the guys that i did o m with they went on to mit another one went to the school of mines in colorado these were like brainiac super smart dudes and they had wild ideas. I mean, we were in elementary school and middle school, right? Their ideas were great ideas, but the technology wasn't such, right? Like, mm. wasn't quite to the place. There was this girl, one of my acquaintances, this guy, Brahim Al-Husseini. He, he owns a venture capitalist firm that's specific for environmental projects that solve really big environmental issues. Okay. And they funded a girl recently who had discovered that there was like a bacteria that could eat plastic in the ocean. Oh, wow. But there was some additional, if you just hear that idea and you go, well, like, (laughs) can it eat other things it shouldn't or does it leave like a byproduct? And so they needed to do some additional research on that. And you need funding to do additional research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, is that that a bad idea? We don't, you don't know yet. Sometimes you don't know until you do sufficient, in her case, it was in the lab research, right? But for other cases, it's sufficient market research. Yeah. How does the average entrepreneur, what would you tell them if they're like, well, how do I know if this is a good idea or not? Like, how do I know if it's worth continuing to pursue? And how do I know if it's worth putting my time and energy into a thing? Right? I would say ask yourself three questions. So the first one is, who do I think this thing, whether it's a service or a physical product, whatever the thing Mm -hmm. is, who do I think this would help? Mm -hmm. And then go talk to those people. Yeah. Like actually ask them questions. Yeah. Because this is what I see this all the time in entrepreneurs. They have a really cool idea. Yep. 
and the people they want to serve don't have the time to use the product they're creating. Yeah. Or they have a really good idea and the people they want to serve don't have the money yep. to purchase. Yep. Right? Or yep. the people they want to help don't care. Like it's yeah. not a problem that is a serious enough problem for them that they would be willing to spend the time or the money. But yeah. you don't know that until you start talking to people. So that would be the first thing. Figure yeah. out who it is you want to serve and go have a conversation with them. Yeah. Two, how big is your market? Is it big enough that you can actually make money? <laughs> <laughs> if you're like, I want to knit sweaters of anti-hypoallergenic wool for large and tall men. I don't know. Are there a lot of large and tall men who are allergic to wool and they need sweaters? <laughs> Is that a big enough market that you can make money? I'm going to solve <laughs> this problem for snail farmers. <laughs> <laughs> and how We're many laughing, of those are there? If you're listening to this and you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if my market's big enough. That's something to actually ask yourself. Like, you can be too niche, honestly. Yeah. So yeah. to me, it's like a question of who do you want to serve? Go talk to them. Tell them about the thing that you're offering and ask them, like, are they willing to spend the time to learn? If it's a new technology, are they willing to spend the time to learn the technology? Yep. For example, I had a friend that's a mutual friend of ours, Michael, and he's in web security, right? Yep. yep. Big security guy. And he yep. has this idea to serve, not the elderly, but people 65 and over how to protect themselves online on their sure. computers and on their phones. Because they didn't grow up with the internet. They didn't right. grow up they with all this stuff. Right, yeah. right. So yep. they don't get how exposed they're making themselves all the time. Yep. And <laughs> so he talked to me about it. He was like, what do you think? And I said, well, first of all, I think you should probably talk to at least 10 people who are 65 to maybe 75 and find out if they're willing to learn this new technology. Yeah. Because he had this cool idea, but, and he, so we did, guess what? They weren't willing, they were not interested in learning something new. Yep. yep. Like, he had to think about it. Do I want to create something that is a do it for you kind of thing? Right. Right. Or something, you know, that is chain, something that chain, to your point, change the execution. Right. Because that's a huge problem for the market he's going after. Yeah. It's huge, huge problem. It's a, but it's also a limited time business. Right. Because in within the next 10 years, all the people who are turning, you know, 60 and above we're getting closer to having grown up with the internet or having had it long enough in our lives that we know all, all the pitfalls. So to your point, it's sort of like, are you trying to create a lasting business that 30 years from now will still be a business? Well, then you have to keep listening to and finding the next biggest problem and solving it. Otherwise, you become obsolete as a business as well, right? Right. Well, and it's the thing that him and I talked about was who would be willing to spend the time and the money are the people who have to pay for if their parents are exposed and they oh, get their identity stolen, yeah, which is yeah, their yeah. kids. Smart. So their kids are like that, you know, Smart. 38 to 50. Yeah. And that's who your market would be. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Because we just talked about, right, that's the vision. The vision yeah. was a world where people who are elderly are not getting their identity stolen, yeah. right? Yeah. And getting their, you know, life savings stolen, which is yes. he had, that he had known some people that had happened to. Ugh. But the market was wrong. Because yeah. those people aren't, it's actually a little beyond them for, like you said, people who did not grow up yeah. using technology. And then there are people, even my age, I'm 45, who are technology adverse. Yeah. Right? So anyway, yeah. the point is, one, talk to the people you want to serve and find out if they're willing to spend the time and the money, yep. the energy to use this thing you have. It yeah. will help you identify if the delivery way that you're doing it, if they're willing or not. Yeah. Two, figure out your niche. Like, is it too niche? <laughs> or is it too broad? That can be a problem yeah. too. Like, yep. this is for everybody. Well, that makes it harder to market. Yes. And then to me, the third one is... Do you actually love it? Like, does it excite you? Are you excited Ooh, about it? Are you excited yeah. about solving that problem? Because that excitement on the nights when you're like, this is so annoying. Yeah. Why am I doing this again? Why don't I just go get a real job? Yeah. <laughs> it would be so much yeah. easier. Yeah. I'm certain that somebody else's dream, I can just Monday through Friday, eight <laughs> hours each day, fulfill their gosh darn exciting dream for them and be like, later, going for my weekend. See ya. Yeah. yeah. I would say if, you, if you're a listener and you have an idea, like start there. 
identify one if you're just like actually excited about it if, yeah. if that actually solved the problem and got fulfilled does it excite you because that excitement or inspiration you have to find it on the days when it feels challenging or hard to push through because yeah. when you go from the inspired idea into the the like getting it done part, that's where a lot of the effort comes from. To identify people that you want to serve and go talk to them and see if they actually are interested in adopting either the new technology that you're talking about or they'd be willing to learn something new. It's kind of like my uncle, Amazon, he was complaining about how he remembered back in the day when you know there wasn't like the little belts where you put stuff in it oh yeah like belts, belts, yeah and he said he remembered when that got created he thought it was the coolest thing ever and now we were yeah. talking about amazon and he was like you know kind of shaking his head in disappointment about how it's taking jobs away from checkers or something mm, like yeah, that yeah. and then we were just kind of talking back and forth and he said but when i was a kid it was like pony express ceased being a thing yeah. And, you know, and like UPS and FedEx were starting to become a yep. thing, you know, in the anyway. So it's like, are people willing to adopt whatever this new idea is? And evolve. And, yeah. yeah, and evolve. And if not, is there people who serve those people that are actually your your right audience? Yeah. And then are you too niche or not niche enough? So, okay. So what do you think is the most important personality trait or characteristic that someone needs to have? in order to be a successful entrepreneur? Oh, wow. Hmm. That's a tough one. I don't know if there is a single most important one. Mm. It'd be easier, I think, to say the three most common or four most common ones I see sure. with entrepreneurs. Sure, yeah, go for it. Um, one is uh, imagination. Mm, I, I for sure that see that. I see that with all entrepreneurs. I think of David, your husband, and mm -hmm. he's got a really vivid imagination and it's really served him in all the things he's created to mm -hmm. what people would call grit or perseverance. Mm -hmm. Creating a business and then taking and like being able to ride the roller coaster of business yeah. is nerve wracking sometimes. Yeah. Economy changes and mm -hmm. uh, markets change and you change and your desire, yeah. like all of that stuff, that takes grit. I would say people who are, the word I would use, the really successful entrepreneurs I've met have been super passionate people. Yeah. And whatever that word brings up for your listeners, if they're, you know, they have in their mind like really charismatic out on the stage people, that's not actually what I mean. Yeah. My dad is not like that at all. That's like not him. He's actually a little bit socially awkward. He would not say that, but I say that. Um, but he's really passionate about what he does. He's yeah. passionate. My dad's a, you know, a biker and he yeah. owned a motorcycle shop. So he is passionate about vintage, classic and antique bikes. He is passionate, not just about the business, but about what it is that he does. Yeah. Um, passion is huge. When John Mack, I actually met him and a whole bunch of other kind of big entrepreneurs, people who were big visionaries. And that was, I just felt like all of them were so passionate. Grit, yeah, for sure. Passion and imagination. I would say those are the three big things. I love it. I love yeah. it. Okay, so what is one question you wish I'd asked you that I didn't, how would you have answered it? <laughs> <laughs> What's one question you would have asked me? I think probably the only question that we didn't really talk about, you mentioned it a couple times, but people might have been like, did she say intuition? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that one. That one. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably for your listeners, a question I would have wanted you to ask is, well, how do you define intuition and why do you think it's a useful skill in entrepreneurship? How would you have answered? Intuition is a direct way of knowing or understanding something without mm. the need to process data. Mm. So you can think of really big enterprises or Sarah Blakely of Spanx. Yeah that was someone who had a completely clear knowing about something. Mm. Uh, Steve Jobs about the iPhone, right? Oprah about the need for women who were at home to feel like they were in group therapy. That was kind of, she talks about that a little bit, <laughs> yeah. which I love. So that, that's how I define intuition. Mm. And why is intuition useful in 
entrepreneurship. All entrepreneurs have that intuitive moment. You could call it that creative moment where they're inspired by an idea. And Mm. all of those ideas are different, right? My idea was not to be broke anymore. And when I thought about that, I got inspired by the idea of having a business, just the idea. My dad was working for Harley, Rocky Mountain Harley Davidson, and he watched how the business operated and ran. And he thought, I can do this better. Like I can do this better. And he was right. I mean, 30, 32 years brick and mortar business. And so like whatever that divine, that like moment of inspiration, like the lightning bolt, this guy Chase I know who runs a really large, what you call it, like consultancy for energy companies. He had this idea that a person who had business acumen was not talking to the scientists and the engineers and then the people who owned the energy companies, like someone who could translate all three languages, science, engineering, and business. And so that was like, he just had this moment of, yes, this is what there is to do. And so every business owner has that moment. But then when we go from the creation of something, which feels very, very, very imagination oriented to the execution of something we move away from intuition. And Mm. what I know from working with thousands of entrepreneurs is that when we move away from that inspired imagination, creative part of our brain and into the how we start limiting what's possible and we only go by what's already been done. So if you have an idea as an entrepreneur listening to the show, it's likely that nobody else has done this already. Then why would you look outside of yourself to see how other people did something? Because they've never done what you've done. Why would you look to them? That's not the expertise that you need to be looking for outside of yourself. It's more in the world of maybe marketing, maybe manufacturing, how to become Maybe. a better leader. Right, right. Yeah. Leadership, management, yeah. that kind of stuff, yeah. but not necessarily how to deliver the idea because that because you're the wild, crazy entrepreneurial genius who has the idea in the first place. Yeah. All right. I love that answer. So are there any podcast books, resources, anything that you'd recommend to our audience? I know you've mentioned a couple and I'll make sure those are in the show notes, but anything that you specifically say you know, if you're an entrepreneur, these resources, you you really should be should be listening to these things or reading these books or, or whatever that might be. These are going to be strange books uh, for people because they are not directly correlated to business. But sure. um, we love those kind. They're OK, <laughs> well, I'm a I'm a big believer in habits. Ooh, I love that. And uh, one of my favorite books about habits is called The Power of Habit by Charles Durig. And mostly when we go from being an employee to becoming an entrepreneur, we don't recognize that all of a sudden it changes our whole worldview and mm-hmm. you have to change your habits in some really obvious ways, but in some so not obvious ways. So if you if you have the habit way of looking at the world and the way of operating as an employee, it takes something to switch into that new mindset and new habits. Absolutely. So that's I a great that. book. It talks about the personal level of habit change, the organizational level of habit change and then societal. It's really, really good. I really love that one. The other one that I'm thinking of in relationship to business is when you start a business, you really want to true yourself up around money and Mm, recognize your, I would call them perhaps your limiting beliefs or even stuff that you don't recognize, stuff maybe related to childhood, stuff related to money. There are so many great books about money, but the one, a couple that come to me is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's a great book if you Mm. have not really dealt with your money stuff. You know, things like rich people are blank, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Um, yeah, whatever whatever that thing is. Let's see, yeah, so Your Money, Your Life. I also, so then the third book that came to me more specifically about business is that book, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever read it in your audience. I'm sure someone will go, oh, interesting that she mentions that, Influence. It's a book by Robert Saldini. He's a social psychologist. And 
in business, people are trying to influence you and you're trying to influence people all the time. Mm, So being able to recognize the methods in which people are trying to influence you or you're trying to influence people, it's almost like, like recognizing the language you're using, but you may not, you may not have that distinction. So one of the things of, uh, call them weapons of influence, but one of the ways in which you can influence people is through liking. Mm. So you just think of every time you've gone to buy a car, the car salesman is using liking as a way to get you to be like invested with him through this whole entire process. But at the end, then when you have to sign the dotted line, it's not the same guy. It's the, it's the finance guy, guy, right? Who uses (laughs) authority, that's right. another type of influence. So I think if I think all three of those things, one, really recognizing the habits, two, really being able to identify the places where you still have negative beliefs or limiting beliefs about money, and then three, recognizing how the language you use to influence people, it will help you be more present too. Because once you become a business owner, once you're an entrepreneur, you now join a huge group of people who are marketed to more than anybody else. Oh, yeah. And so it's helpful to know, right, whether it's coaches or coaching programs or whatever, you want to recognize how people are influencing you. Um, So those are the three books I would recommend. Really good. I love that. Miss Shoshana... Thank you so, so, so much for joining me today and for sharing your story and for being so vulnerable and so open and so transparent and completely loving of my audience. I really appreciate that. If listeners have questions or they want to get in touch with you or maybe they want to be in your Intuitive Entrepreneur Program, how do they get in touch with you and how would they start a conversation? Best way is to go to simplespirit.com. And click on, especially if you're a business owner, you'll see intuitive life, intuitive business, click on intuitive life and schedule a discovery call with me. That's the best way. Um, You can also follow me on Instagram, Shoshana French. You can also follow me on Facebook, but that's what I would recommend if you wanted to just have like a discovery call. So we could have a conversation to find out where you are and what support you need. I am filled up to the rim with resources. So if I'm not (laughs) the right fit for you, I will find you someone who can support whatever you're up to. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great conversation. I appreciate you too. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. This is the, the next installment in our Entrepreneur Experience series. And uh, coming up, we're going to have both of our co-founders and Precursor are also going to share their journeys as entrepreneurs. So that's going to be really fun. So as always, happy entrepreneuring, and I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Precursor, the startup journey. If you have an idea for a startup and you want to explore the proven process of turning your idea into a viable business, check us out at Precursor.com. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer.